The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. As the flock is dismissing, y'all can go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 10. Please stand with me as we read God's word. I'm going to read portions of chapter 10 and 11, and so we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to begin in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and also from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now jump ahead to chapter 11, verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the, hand of, from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Okay, now jump ahead to verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, 
and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt sacrifice. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhoods of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. And verse 39. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow he had made. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as uh, you just heard, we have um, a terrible, sad story uh, before us today. Um, a man who was raised up as a deliverer, a judge of Israel, um, a man who is marked by being clothed with the Spirit of the Lord, but a man who nonetheless makes a foolish vow to burn at an altar whatever first comes out of his house. You find out that it's his daughter, and he actually follows through with it. And you see that a daddy does something unthinkable to his daughter. Uh, so this morning, what we're going to see is what I'm calling, in, in essence, it is the main idea um, of our text and our time this morning, and it's this. It's the marred salvation that Jephthah brings to the people of Israel, the marred salvation that tainted, that tarnished, that disfigured salvation that he brings to the people of God. And so this morning, what I'm going to do is just before we begin is to pray. Um, in all honesty, my mind is just all over the place right now. Uh, this was a hard sermon to craft this morning. Um, if you've ever tried to write a sermon on the story of Jephthah, may the Lord bless and keep you. This was my first, all right? And so um, I'm just keenly feeling uh, my weakness. And if you remember our sermons through Gideon, that's not a bad place to be. The Lord often intentionally weakens his servants so that when anything good comes out of it, people will stand back and go, it ain't because you did anything, man. It's because the Lord God did something great through you. Um, if you want to know your pastor well, uh, I don't tend to embrace that truth as often as I should the embracing of, of my weakness. And so what I want to do right now is just embrace that before you. We need to ask for the Holy Spirit to come and empower our time this morning. Some of you might be asking, what good can come 
from Jephthah, but I promise you what we'll find is the grace and mercy of the Savior we need, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Let's pray for one another that as we turn our attention to this marred, tarnished, disfigured salvation that we find in Jephthah, that the Holy Spirit would empower our time in the Word so that we would leave here today not saying, Ooh, just another church service. I don't want that for us. And I hope you don't want that for you. We are gathering here today so we can hear from the living God point us to our desperate, desperate need for the Savior who died on the cross and resurrected from the dead so that we might go forth as his witnesses pointing people to come, taste, and see the goodness of the Savior. And I lack the utter inability to make us get that, and that's why we need God to show up this morning. So let's ask for the Lord to do that, and then we'll dive into the text, okay? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We come here, I'm positive, with our hearts and minds scattered in 1,000 different directions. But I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, for the fame and the name of King Jesus, who is simply worthy of our full and utter absolute devotion that you, Holy Spirit, now would gather our hearts, gather our minds, and focus them with a laser-like intensity on the text before us. That you, Holy Spirit, would cause our hearts to burn within us at the preaching of your word. That you, Holy Spirit, would wield the double-edged sword of the word of God and slice us to the very marrow, the heart, the soul, of our being so that we would see our absolute need for the perfect salvation offered, accomplished, and found in the Savior who was crucified, dead, buried, and yet resurrected to newness of life, signaling once and for all the absolute defeat of Satan, sin, hell, and death. God, cheer our hearts this morning at the prospect of being wowed by the good news of your grace. And then would you posture us in such a place to where we could respond <laughs> to the good news of the gospel as a result of hearing what we will hear this morning from your servant, Jephthah. It's in the name of King Jesus I pray these things. Amen. I want you just to think on this. You've already heard me mention the word and give you a little clue to what it means, but think on this question. If something is marred, M-A-R-R-E-D, if something is marred, what is it? What are we trying to describe when we say thing X or thing Y is, is marred? Well, for some of us, we might, I don't use that word a lot, so the question would drive us to want to know the definition of the word marred. So we go and find the dictionary, we crank up the old Webster's, and when we begin to understand that when something is marred, what we're saying is the quality of that object, the quality of that thing, it's been disfigured. It's spoiled, it's tainted, it's tarnished. 
It's marred. So whatever it might be that we're trying to describe as marred, maybe it's a person's career, maybe it's a person's reputation, maybe it's a person's character, maybe it's your neighbor's vehicle that was perfect until you backed into it. Now it's marred a little bit. Uh, Maybe it's just um, these various things that can show up in our lives. What we can say is that at one time that something was perfect, but now that something has happened to it, it's now been spoiled, it's disfigured, it's tarnished, it is now marred. It's no longer perfect, it's marred. If you think about that idea of the difference between something being perfect and something being tarnished, something being marred, if you carry those two categories into our text this morning and you lay them right on top of Judges 10 through 12, you're swimming in the right stream to try to understand the kind of deliverance, the kind of salvation that Jephthah is going to bring before us this morning because it's this concept that lies before us, something being marred that our attention is turned to as Jephthah shows us a marred, tainted, tarnished salvation. You turn to chapter 10, verse 6, and what you find is that the unfortunate, all-too-familiar cycle is just rinsing and repeating once again as God the Savior is forsaken for gods who cannot save. That's what you see in chapter 10, verse 6 through verse verse 16. God the Savior is once again forsaken for gods who can't save. The cycle begins. The people rebel. They do what's evil on the side of the Lord. The response of the Lord is the same. Their, their rebellion kindles the anger of the Lord. Again, oppression comes as a result of the rebellion. We read that the Lord sold Israel into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Jephthah is going to deal with the Ammonites next week. The longest amount of verses and chapters devoted to a deliverer, Samson, 13, 14, 15, and 16. The enemy he's going to deal with are the Philistines here that have been raised up as the oppressors. And what we read is that these oppressors are crushing the people of Israel. They're shattering them, and they did so for 18 years. And not only did the Ammonites stomp Israel through Gilead, but we read that they did the same in Judah, they do the same in Benjamin, they do the same in Ephraim, so that Israel was severely depressed, God's word says, and leads them to the next part of the cycle where in their distress, what do the people of Israel do? They cry out. And they cried out to the Lord saying, Lord God, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we have gone and served the Baals. Now, notice that their cries include some sort of confession of sin. You see this over there in chapter 10, verse 10. But evidently, Yahweh had heard this song and dance before. You see, upon the confession in chapter 10, verse 10, when Yahweh is going to say what he says, you have to sort of draw one of two conclusions. Either he is a big jerk, and he sees true repentance, and the Lord God says, I don't care if this is true repentance, I'm not going to save you anymore. So either Yahweh is malevolent, and he doesn't care if you are truly repentant, Or his response to this crying out in distress 
And the way Yahweh responds to it is an indicator that there's not something quite right with the confession of the people in verse 10. And I think that's exactly what's going on. The people of Israel in verse 10 cry out, and their crying out includes some sort of confession of sin. That is a step in the right direction. So far in Judges, that has not been said of their confession, been said of their crying out, that there's actually been a confession of sin with it. But evidently, Yahweh has heard this song and dance before from his people. For, verse 11 and following, the Lord said to the people of Israel, Listen, did I not save you from the Egyptians? Wasn't I the one who saved you from the Amorites? I saved you from the Ammonites. I saved you from the Philistines. The Sidonians also, the Amalekites, the Manonites. They oppressed you. You cried out to me. I saved you out of their hand. And it's that one three-little word there, yet. Yet. You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You see, like an elephant in the room, which all can see, Yahweh clearly sees their cry for what it is. Listen, this is the, this is the, this is the utter, uh, down, uh, the point-blank understanding of what their cry is. Yahweh clearly sees that their cry is this. It's an unrepentant sorrow for the consequences of their sin. It's not a repentant sorrow for their sin. There's a difference between a repentance that says, I don't like the consequences that my sin are bringing me. So imagine this. Someone says, I'm going to go about marriage in my own way. And I'm not going to seek the Lord's direction for the way I'm to relate to my wife or the wife is to relate to her husband. And what they say is, we're going to do this marriage according to the gospel of us. And so they go and they do it. But to pull in Galatians 6 language, their whole marriage is just a consistent sowing of thoughts, a consistent sowing of words, a consistent sowing of actions into the field of the flesh. And what they reap is a harvest of sin-laden consequences. Now someone might say, I don't like the consequences of my wife always yelling at me, so we're going to go to counseling. They could be sorrowful that this is the nature of their marriage, but maybe when you start peeling back the layers, what you find out on behalf of the husband is he's not really sorry that he's a big jerk and he keeps leading his wife in a way that's not really Christ-like whatsoever. What he doesn't like is just the way that his wife is always nagging him when he comes home. He doesn't like the consequences of his sin. So when he's saying, I'm sorry to his wife, really it's an I'm sorry because I just want you to stop nagging me. I don't want the consequences anymore. But if there was a genuine repentance of heart, it would be more like sackcloth and ashes tearing the shirt. Like, man, like, I'm the one here that is off kilter. I'm the one not following the Lord. And my repentance and the words on my mouth of sorrow are being driven more by, I have strayed from the Lord God. And because I have strayed from Him, yes, there's consequences I don't like, but the root is this. There is a sin hiding in the dark corners of my heart that needs to be cleansed and taken care of and dealt with at the foot of the cross. Those are two kinds of sorrow. One is, I don't like the consequences of my sin. 
That's worldly sorrow. There's a genuine, true repentance that says, I am sorry, Lord, because I have sinned against you. If you want a true picture of what genuine sorrow looks like, go read Psalm 51 of David's confession of his adultery committed with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. His opening gambit is this, against you, O Lord, I have sinned. Really? I think you killed Uriah and you slept with someone not your wife. But he doesn't start off by saying, yeah, I don't like the consequences that happened over here. He recognizes this. When I did that, that was directly against you. And what we see in Psalm 51 is a genuine picture of what genuine repentance looks like. Yahweh, the omniscient one, the one who knows all things, knows that when his people right here are confessing, ah, we're distressed, we're confessing our sin, and we don't like it, it is more an unrepentant sorrow over the consequences of their sin. They are not really sorry for their sin itself. So what do the people do? Well, they apparently get the point because the moment you roll right into verse 15, the author tells us that they confess their sin once again, saying, Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. Only this time there does seem to be some sort of sign of repentance as the author tells us that they turn from the foreign gods among them and turn to the Lord. You read the commentators, and man, there was more ink spilt on these couple little verses than you'd probably care to imagine. Like, is it really repentance? Is it really not? Is it just them repeating what they did back in verse 10? And I, I sort of landed in the middle of the road where it's like, you know, it seems like something is moving in the right direction because for the first time, this confession of sin seems to be anchored to repentance. What is repentance? Turning from something, turning to something. They seem to be turning from their foreign gods and turning to the Lord God to serve Him. So it seems like there's some air of repentance, but as we will continue to read through the remainder of Samson's episodes and the last couple of chapters in Judges, it seems like it just goes right back to where, where they come from. But we learn is that the Lord God became impatient over the misery of Israel there in verse 16. That is, is, Yahweh could bear Israel's suffering no more. And so motivated by his compassion, the Lord God will act to save Israel. He's going to once again, by grace, not because their repentance is so great, but because God is so great. Because his mercy, though our sins might be many, his mercy is more. And this sets us up to see point number two, which is the rescue and the rule of Yahweh. The rescue and the rule of Yahweh. So if you want to summarize what we've seen up to this point so far, I think in the book of Judges, even here in this episode before us, I think what we could say is this, and I need you to listen here because I think this is crucial to understanding what is admittedly a hard text before us this morning. If you want to just summarize all that we've encountered so far, I think what we could say this. Israel wants Yahweh to be their rescuer. But Israel does not want Yahweh to be their ruler. They want a rescuer. They don't want a ruler. So do you see this in the text? If you look and just go back and you see the interactions that Israel's had with Yahweh up to this point, Israel has come to the place of basically a settled disregard for the Lord God. They have thrust Yahweh out of their lives, 
by decidedly submitting to the rule of gods who cannot save. That is, until all of a sudden, in their distress, they decide, you know, we really do need this one that we've abandoned. So in a sense, what we can say is that they do want Yahweh. Israel does want the Lord God, but they only want Him on their terms. They only want Yahweh as a rescuer. They want God to get them out of their jam, but beyond that, they want nothing to do with the rule of Yahweh. He's great to have around when you're in a bind, but other than that, he's otherwise of no use. So it's that dichotomy that we've seen where people are happy to go through life saying, don't want you, Jesus, don't care about you, Jesus, Lord, don't need a Lord, don't want a king, don't want a ruler. They're doing themselves. They're living life according to the gospel of self. They sow some seeds. They reap some consequences they don't like. And all of a sudden, oh, God, where are you? God, I need you. Come and rescue me. God rescues them. And it's like, peace out. They run right back over here and start doing what they want, how they want, whenever they want. It's the Abimelech-like desires that we talked about last week. The Lord of their life is self. Thus, I'll do what I want, want, when I want, how I want, wherever I want, because that's what the king's self says is going to be good. I think this is what's going on here, and this is how they're interacting with Yahweh. Great rescuer when you're in a pickle. But other than that, move along, Lord. Thank you very much. We'll do us until we need you again. You're a good hip pocket rescuer, but you're not worthy of being the ruler of my life. It's the difference between the rescue and the rule of Yahweh. Now, interestingly enough, when you look at chapter 10, verse 17... And you work yourself through to chapter 11, verse 11, what you learn is this, is that the people of Israel, the Gileadites, treat Jephthah in the exact same way. It is too accidental when you read this that it's almost verbatim the way Israel relates to Yahweh, the author pulls forward all these words and ideas and says this is the exact same way the Gileadites are relating to Jephthah. In the words of one brother, these verses here before us, he tells us that the way the Gileadites treat Jephthah is really an acted parable of the way Israel approaches Yahweh. And the author wants you, the reader, to see this. So like Yahweh, who was rejected by Israel, Jephthah is rejected by the Gileadites. And just like Israel presumed Yahweh would bail them out when they needed it, the Gileadites presume that Jephthah would just be there ready to rescue them whenever they come tapping on his door and say, hey, we're in a bind, save us. Both Yahweh's reply and Jephthah's reply show that they know someone is trying to use them. So when you go in chapter 10, verse 11 through 14, Yahweh says, listen, I'm not going to save him. I know what you're trying to do. The motivation of your heart is this. You're just using me. Why don't you go to the gods that you want to submit yourself to the rule of and see if they will save you? Jephthah says the same thing over there in verses 7 and 8. Do you see that there? Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? He's looking at him and saying, you didn't want anything to do with me. Now all of a sudden you want something to do with me? 
Verse 8, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, well, this is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites, i.e., you're of service to us now. You weren't of benefit before, but you're of benefit now, so we're knocking on the door. Show up, rescue us, and then just get on out of here. They both know, Yahweh and Jephthah, that someone is trying to use them. And so like the Israelites who merely want the rescue of Yahweh, so also the Gileadites merely want the rescue of Jephthah. Neither of them want both the rule of the rescuer. None of them want the rescue and the rule. They want just the rescue. Or to use different words, to give the same truth, Neither of them want a Lord, but they do want a Savior. Happy to have a Savior. Refuse to have a Lord. And the unfortunate truth is that many people today try to live in the exact same way as it relates to Jesus Christ. With their mouth, they are happy to say, Jesus has rescued me. But the fruit of their life says, Jesus is not the Lord of me. They will proclaim the salvation of Jesus with their words, but with their actions, they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ over their life. Now, the problem is that you cannot have salvation from Jesus without accepting the lordship of Jesus. That's to say, you cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting his rule. Either Jesus is Savior and Lord, or he's not your Savior. You see, Israel and the Gileadites were trying to live this disjointed life, where they were trying to live in the two worlds of going, I need Yahweh as my rescuer, but I'm going to live where I am the ruler. And we, unfortunately, know people who try to do this with Jesus, Maybe some of us have struggled with this. Maybe some of us are here making the same arguments where our Christianity is defined as Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. You'll go around and say, I'm a Christian. Why? Jesus has saved me. But when you step back and pan out and look at the panorama of your life, the details of your life, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, are consistently marked by not submission to the resurrected king who is worthy of lordship, but it's more indicative of you being the lord of you. And so there's two things, this dichotomy, this divorce that's going on, this division. Jesus is my lord, or Jesus is my savior, we might say, but our lives proclaim a different story. You see, Israel and the Gileadites, they're trying to live this disjointed life, much like some of us here this morning, much like some that we might know. And the question we can ask ourselves is this, am I doing the same? Am I living a disjointed life? Have I bought into the lie that I can have Jesus as my Savior, but not my Lord? Have we bought into this blind spot where we're genuinely going around waving the banner, maybe having fooled ourselves to where we think, yes, you know what, I show up to church, Jesus is my Savior, I know some Bible verses, I walked an aisle, maybe I was baptized once. 
But the overarching reality of your Christianity is defined by just mere words that say Jesus is Savior. But what we fail to see is a lordship pursuit that is intricately knitted to the realities of Jesus as being Savior and Lord. You see, if you are here this morning and you are seeing in your own life right now the Spirit is pulling back the curtain, so to speak, and giving you that a sneak peek into your life, that there are maybe some areas in your life where you are digging in your heels and saying, No, Jesus, I will not submit to your lordship in this area. My call for you is to repent and turn to the merciful, good, benevolent rule of the king of the universe. But some of us are here this morning, and it's not just a little area of our life, but it's the totality of our life. We have dug in our heels, and we have said this. You know what? Jesus will not be my Lord. And because you refuse to come to Christ as Lord, then what I'm telling you is this. If Jesus is not your Lord, he's not your Savior. No matter how much you might want to say Jesus is your Savior. If the habitual day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out, routine of your life is no Lord, no Lord, no Lord, no Lord, no Lord. It doesn't matter how much you might say Jesus is your Savior. He's not your Savior because Savior and Lord, they're intricately woven together. You can't have Jesus as Savior and say, you will not be my Lord. If this is you here this morning, my plea is that you would run to the merciful Savior who is also the gracious Lord, knowing, says the Apostle Paul, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's the Apostle Paul going. Salvation, most definitely tied to believing in your heart. God raised him from the dead. His resurrection from the dead is God's bullhorn shout that his son is defeated Satan, defeated sin, defeated death. His resurrection is the stamp of God's approval. My son is vindicated. He is sitting down at the right hand. God, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God saying, listen everybody, salvation is found in him who has defeated the enemies we could not defeat. But notice that Paul just doesn't say, listen, just believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, no, 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 there's this backside of the coin confession of, yes, confessing your mouth. He is my Lord, and I am believing he's resurrected from the dead, and that's where salvation meets, says the Apostle Paul. So are you living a disjointed life, trying to do the same, crafting a God basically in your own image, saying, yeah, Jesus will be my Savior, but he won't be my Lord. And then notice how the author moves on and then he simply shows us this next point, the unfair accusation of an enemy. The unfair accusation of an enemy. It's verses 12 through 28 there in chapter 11, and I don't want to take too long on this section of Jephthah's story, but I do want to point out just simply how Jephthah went about the task of now being the new deliverer, right? Do, do you remember where we're at in, in the story? Let's come back into the story. Where, where are we? 
The people have said, hey, we're in a bind. Jephthah, will you deliver us? And he's like, oh, mate, okay, are you guys really sure? Are you serious about this? They're like, yes, we're serious. He's like, okay. So the first thing he does is not wield the sword and rush into battle. He actually goes and he has a conversation. And that's what we're seeing here in, in these verses. Verses 11, or I'm sorry, verses uh, 12 down through verse 28. He first sends a messenger to the king of the Ammonites. Jephthah wants to know why the Ammonites are attacking, and the Ammonite king says, basically, listen, uh, you took my land, and I want it back. Jephthah says, okay, let's talk about this. The Ammonite king says, I want this peaceably. And so what ensues is basically a threefold argument against the accusation from his enemy. Again, we're not going to tease these out long. They should be popping up on the screen here in a moment, but you can write these down and go back and be good Bereans for your prayer and your consideration to go and see if what I'm saying is true. The three arguments, real quick, are just this. Jephthah argues first from a historical kind of argument in verses 15 through 22. The summation is, listen, the Ammonites uh, have never lived in this land. Jephthah's point is that if you pull out the history books, the facts will prove that this land belongs to Israel as provided by Yahweh. So you coming in and saying, this is actually my land, he says, you got the facts wrong. History will prove it. His second argument, just real quickly, is from the argument of theology. This is verses 23 and 24. Jephthah continues this historical argument by pointing out the theology behind it. It was the Lord, the God of Israel, who dispossessed the prior inhabitants of this land and gave this land as a divine gift. So he's like, not only is there the historical argument, but he says the theology is we didn't just decide to do it. It was Yahweh himself who gave this to us. And then third, he deploys what's basically a legal argument in verses 25 and 26. He he argues from precedent, pointing to the time Israel took this land in battle and highlighting how no one challenged their right to have this land. And if this is the case, over 300 years, no one challenging them to the land. He's like, why are you making a big stink about this all of a sudden, right? He's like, you're the one who is off base. You see, all three arguments prove that it is the Ammonites who are in the wrong. It's not God's people who are in the wrong. But the king of the Ammonites was in no mood to be confused by the facts for verse 28. He, the king of the Ammonites, did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So Jephthah, listen to this, knows that the accusation of his enemy is unfair. It's an unfair accusation being laid at his feet. And in the face of the unfair accusation, we watch as Jephthah entrusts himself, verse 27, to the Lord the judge. Out of all the judges, there's only one judge who calls the judge the judge, and that's Jephthah right here, right now. And what you see is that in the face of of being accused unfairly. You don't have him rushing to his defense. He's now going to entrust himself to the Lord, the judge. Who will, says Jephthah, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. In this, Jephthah becomes a shadowy portrait that points forward to the Lord Jesus, who, says the apostle Peter, committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. So there is the perfect Son of Man, the perfect Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin committed none. Deceit in his mouth 
never to be found. But here he is being reviled. And the Apostle Peter says when he was reviled, what did he do? He exacted vengeance and took matters into his own hand. That's not what he did. When he was reviled on the cross, here's what the Lord Jesus did. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he shot down from the cross looking like Thor with lightning shooting out of his eyes and was zapping people. No, that's not what he was doing. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what was he doing? Peter says he was, listen, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So as one brother put it, in Jephthah partially and Christ supremely, we have an example of how to face unfair accusations. Now, it would be outstanding if chapter 12 started right here. And we're like, oh, bring on Samson. Here we go. But that's not what happens. But for Jephthah, the story doesn't stop here as we lastly turn to the blind spots that undo us. The blind spots that undo us. Verse 29 to the end of our reading. You see, the king of the Ammonites doesn't want a conflict with words. Remember, that's how Jephthah first rolled. Accusations unfair, laid at his feet. He doesn't draw the sword first. He basically draws the pen and says, let's talk about this. The Ammonite king's like, there ain't no time for talk. Conflict of words, don't want it. What I want right now is a conflict of war. Now, the good news is that Yahweh, listen, this is crucial to, I think, understanding some very complex verses before us right now. The good news is that Yahweh, remember, has already been moved to save his sinful people. Do you remember that over in 1016? He's like, listen, I'm going to have compassion on you. I'm going to send a deliverer. You're going to be saved. That promise has already been made. And in order to bring about this promise of salvation, verse 29 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. So now what we have is a God-appointed deliverer, a God-appointed lowercase s Savior, who has the promise from Yahweh, I'm going to save you. And who has now the empowering of the Spirit of God to bring that promise to pass. Who's going to open his mouth and make a foolish vow. You see, victory, the victory that's going to come, is going to come not by might. It's not going to come by power. But to pull forward, pull backward the words of Zechariah, this victory is going to come by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And as the audience, we are to understand that this will be the key to Israel's deliverance. Chapter 11, verse 29 is the key to understanding that Yahweh is going to bring the salvation. But it's this very truth which passes Jephthah by as he passes through Gilead to the Ammonites and made a vow to the Lord, saying, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever, whoever, is the actual word there in the original language, comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's 
and I will offer it up for a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice. The author makes short order of the details, telling us Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And then tragedy strikes, verse 34. Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And as we read the story, we are dumbstruck. Like there's just something within you screaming right now, like, dude, just don't keep the vow, man, right? Am I the only one thinking this right now? Like, dude, don't do it, man. Like, I don't know what you were thinking, but like, was it this? Man, I want to sort of think, maybe not this. Like, just don't keep the vow, man. But we're double dumbstruck, not only by the submission of Jephthah's daughter, who says, do to me, Father, according to what has gone out of your mouth, but it's that double dumbstruck by the report that Jephthah did with her according to his vow that he had made. Translation, he burned her as a sacrifice. So when you step back and you just reel back from these verses to say the least that could possibly be said about these verses, this is just a sad and terrible story. I mean, it's atrocious. This is horrific. The thought of a daddy following through on a foolish vow with the foolish vow meaning that I'm going to kill my daughter by burning her as a sacrifice on an altar. That's terrible. It's atrocious. And what you need to know that just because the Bible is recording this doesn't mean the Bible approves of this. They're recording for us the facts. And so we can ask the question, so what are we to make of this story then? Well, I think there's a lot of things that could be said, but I think we can at least begin by saying this. Listen. Like you and me who find it hard at times to take God at his word, it seems Jephthah was in the same boat. Do you hear what I'm saying right now? Like you and like me who hear God give his promises, all of us, I think, would raise our hands if we're being honest and say there are times in our lives where God speaks his promises, we hear those promises, and for whatever reason, we find it hard to take God at his word. And like Jephthah, it seems like we and him find ourselves in the same boat more than we care to admit. So instead of leaving the deliverance of God's people in God's hands according to God's power and according to God's promise, Jephthah feels the need to conjole and butter up Yahweh into keeping his word. In my studies this past week, I found myself asking the question, why make this vow? Like, why even do it in the first place? Why was it not... I'm having compassion on you. I'm giving you a promise to save. Jephthah, you're my man to deliver. I'm going to put the Spirit of the Lord on you. Why did Jephthah just not go, his promise, his power, let's go. We don't need to be convinced anymore 
God is faithful to keep his promise and his empowering to bring about the promise are enough for me. We don't need anything more from Yahweh. And so I was just trying to think, why make the vow? What was going on in his heart, in his mind, where he said, the promise and the power are not enough? What I need to do is take an extra step and make this vow. What was Jephthah's motivation? And to the best of my understanding, to the best of my study and trying to think it out, I think it comes down to this. Jephthah's vow comes down to being motivated by a mistrust of God. It is a mistrust of God. Jephthah, why did you make the vow? I don't trust God to follow through on his promises. I don't think he has the power to pull it off. And so I'm going to treat him like I treat the pagan gods who can maybe be manipulated according to the rules of religion, according to the pagan gods that were invading the people of Israel to where if I make a really big sacrifice and a really big vow, maybe I can corner Yahweh and conjole him and butter him up to really come through on his promises and really come through with power. I can't just simply say, God, it's all you. It has nothing to do with me. It comes down to a mistrust of the promises of God and God's ability to powerfully bring about his promises. And so for reasons known only to him, he just could not take Yahweh's power and promise to save at face value. Instead, he felt the need to secure the favor of Yahweh by manipulating Yahweh with his words. That's the best I can... Why? Why the vow, man? And it's here in Jephthah's belief that Yahweh can be manipulated according to Jephthah's desires that we see Jephthah's blind spot that's going to undo him. The blind spot he fails to see is that the Lord God cannot be manipulated. Yahweh sees through our motives and calls us to account. And perhaps you, like me, even though it's sort of bitter in the mouth to say, are more like Jephthah than we dare, dare to believe. Because perhaps you, like me, can relate to Jephthah because Jephthah makes us look at ourselves and ask, what enormous blind spots do I have? What areas of my life do I do the exact same thing? Where I approach Yahweh with a manipulative kind of approach because I want to get something out of him, I'm not willing to just merely trust him. You see, for some of us, maybe it's the blind spot of thinking we can manipulate God according to our desires. For some of us, maybe it's the blind spot of thinking we can get Yahweh to change his ways by making deals with him. For some of us, maybe it's the blind spot of thinking that I can actually grow in Christ apart from time spent in my Bible and in prayer. Or going back to a little while ago, perhaps some of, for some of us it's the blind spot of thinking Jesus can be my Savior, but I don't need him as my Lord. You see, the point is that we all have blind spots that we fail to see, which is why we so desperately need Jesus to expose our blind spots. 
Jephthah. He just doesn't quite get the job done, does he? As a lowercase s savior, he for sure brings about salvation for the people of God. But the best he can do is produce a marred, tarnished salvation. But if we're to have any hope of eternal life, we need a capital S Savior who can bring about a perfect salvation once and for all time. And when we move into the New Testament, this is exactly what we find as the perfect salvation we need finds its fulfillment in Jesus, who, Matthew says, will save his people from their sins. That's the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. That's the promise of Jesus, Yahweh saves, that he will be the one who perfectly, not marred, tainted, disfigured in any way, but will perfectly bring about the salvation you need, bring about the salvation that I need. Praise be to God for Jephthah, who points us forward to the one better than Jephthah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will perfectly save Let's pray. King Jesus, help us for your name's sake, for your glory, help us. Do in us only what you can do, which is expose our blind spots. Do in us only what you can do, which is help us to see those areas where we are striving with all our might motivated by a basic mistrust of you. Expose to us those areas of life where we are maybe saying one thing with our mouth, but the actions of our lives are this. Words I trust, actions I don't trust. God, help us to not be disjointed in this way for the namesake and for the glory of Christ the Savior. Expose those areas in us, not so that we can go run off and try to fix ourselves and present a better join-together me, but so that in the exposing of our blind spots, we can say, praise be to God, He loves me enough to expose my blind spots, and by the gracious exposure of these blind spots, I'm going to run to the only Savior. I'm going to run to the one who is my Lord, and I'm going to cast myself on His mercy for where my sins are many, for where my blind spots are many. His mercy is more. And God, may we drink from the fountain of mercy and wade into the depths of grace this morning as we respond to you in word, respond to you in prayer, respond to you in song, respond to you with the Lord's Supper. God, help us in these things so that Christ would be magnified through us. It's in your name I pray. Amen.